Welcome to the Compliance Perspectives Podcast. I'm Adam Turtletaub from the Society of Corporate Compliance and Ethics and Healthcare Compliance Association. Joining us today from Munich is the always interesting Christian Hunt. Christian is the author of Humanizing Rules, and he's the founder of the consultancy Human Risk. Christian, thanks for taking time away from your early evening to talk to us today. My absolute pleasure, Adam. Always great to talk to you. Uh, as well for me. Now, we're going to talk about something interesting I saw you post on LinkedIn about escalators in Japan. Can you give us the backstory on what was the problem Japan was having with escalators or, or more accurately, escalator riders? Sure. So, so look, I'm, I'm always on the lookout for what I call compliance in the wild. So examples of things that we see in everyday life that we can we can learn from. And this was something I came across as I was sort of reading the newspapers. And, and this was uh, from Saitama in Japan, uh, which you'll know, Adam, is, is just to the north of Tokyo, but your, your listeners might not be familiar. So very, very close to Tokyo, no. large city. And they have a, a subway system. And uh, part of that subway system, there are escalators that people have to ride to, to get to and from the platforms. And the challenge that they were having was that there were lots of accidents happening. So people hustling to get from A to B and people were getting knocked over. And because the Japanese population is aging, there are more vulnerable people traveling on the system than you might find on average. And so what, what they were trying to do was reduce the number of accidents that were happening and you know just so simply to make everybody safer. I think a byproduct as well is that the most efficient way to use escalators is to is to prevent people from moving on them. So there was a byproduct of wanting to prevent injuries, but also to get more efficiency out of the system. And so they came up with this cunning plan of basically saying to people, uh, we don't want you walking on there. And so they banned walking and running and effectively moving on the escalator beyond standing on it. So do they do that? What do they do exactly? Did they just ban it and start finding people were they putting up signs was there an educational campaign it was it was just a really really simple solution to the problem which is we are going to ban this from happening and we're going to tell people that we're banning it and so they put in place signs and all the sort of usual measures that relied on people's goodwill um you know there wasn't an enforcement regime behind it it was simply just saying you know we don't want you to do this and of course japanese society uh, relatively speaking, is is quite compliant. So there was a presumption there that you could rely on people's natural goodwill to do the right thing and to to just just do exactly as they were told. And so that's what they did. They just put up some signs and said, "Let's you know, let's see if we can we can solve this problem that way." Hmm. So was it successful? So to start with, it was super successful. Um, you know, lots and lots and lots of people did exactly what we were told. And of course, if everybody around you is doing what they're told, it's very difficult for you to bustle past them. And so there's a natural thing where, firstly, if you see lots of other people being compliant, then there's a stronger likelihood of you doing it. something called social proof, which is a very, very powerful tool for getting people to behave in a particular way. And so there's a natural tendency to you see other people doing it, you're like you're more likely to copy what they're doing. But secondly, there's the physical impediment, right, which is if other people are complying with this rule, it is much harder for you not to comply with it because there's more people for you to fight past. So to start with, super successful. And then what happened over time was, I think people's sense of urgency took over and slowly compliance levels started to decline. The interesting thing is that those compliance levels declined, but, but the number of injuries actually fell and that's remained consistently low. So on the one hand, you'd say, well, it started out very successful and failed. On the other hand, over a longer period of time, there were less injuries on the system. So you could say succeeded. Hmm. Interesting. And as you're talking about that, 
feeling of urgency taking over all of the things. I'm reminded of that great social experiment where on a campus, I think it was all for a, a Catholic priest being trained, they staged the incident of some woman lying down like she had been injured. And they found that if they told these students they had to get to this building quickly, that they were much less likely to help the injured woman than if they were just told they needed to go to another building. Uh, it's to me interesting how urgency ends up trumping a lot of other things in our minds, um, ethical, compliant, and otherwise. I think it's a really, really good example of where, where you would say, look, what drives human behavior? And the answer is we have reasons for doing things or, or not doing things. You know, the, the, the behavior is determined by the requirements that we have. And so if I'm incentivized to do something, and that might be because I'm being paid to do it, it might be because, you know, I've got priorities. I need to get home to see my kids. I'm in a hurry. I'm running late, whatever it happens to be. You know, I'll get in trouble if I'm late for work. That kind of thing can, can, can override. And so I think it's a classic example of we need to think about you know, when, when, we're, when we're trying to influence people, we need to just think about well, what are the what are the factors that are influencing, not not the things that we would like them to do, but what they are likely to do. And then we can work out and say, well, how can we influence that as opposed to just assuming that we can tell them what to do and they'll automatically comply. Yeah, well, and that's the thing is, as we've seen over and over again, people are generally willing to follow the rules, but only generally. <laughs> There's more than willing to make themselves exceptions. Now, what is the safe uh, about how we can change behavior. I mean, are, are there good lessons you think we can take away in addition from this? Yeah, so I think I think the first thing to recognize is that we might look at this and say, well, they failed, right? Because they told people to do this particular thing and you know, it started well and then, and then it sort of waned a bit over time. I would say it depends what you set your objective to be. And sometimes we we, we aim for 100% compliance, right? And we assume that that's our target. But, but that might not actually be achievable. It might be really hard. I mean, you can always achieve 100% compliance if you put enough effort into it. If you monitor it, if you put enough incentives in place or disincentives for non-compliance, we will always be able to get people to do what we want if we throw enough at it. The problem is that we don't always have those resources. And if we if we did that for every single requirement, we would start irritating people uh, and they'd find ways of, of, of doing things behind the scenes. Or, but we, you know, it's, po it's possible to, to, to influence people if you throw enough at it. The challenge is that we don't have the resources to do that. And so what I would say is I think it's interesting for us to know that human behavior doesn't work on a, on a theoretical basis, right? Theoretically, you tell people to do something, they ought to comply with it. And what we recognize in the realities of this situation is there are limitations to that. And so we have to think a bit more behaviorally and say to ourselves, okay, there are going to be some things where it's going to be really easy to persuade people to do it. We don't need to put much effort in. There's going to be other things where it's much harder. How can we tell the difference? The answer is we have to start thinking about what is it like for them? And therefore, what you know, uh, what what is the likelihood of them not wanting to do it? What's the likelihood of there being good reasons or bad reasons why they might not want to follow our rules? And if we can identify those, we can start to see what dynamics we might play with. So the behavioral thing is really around saying, look, it's not simply a case of telling people to do it. And just because something is logical, sensible, legal, ethical, doesn't mean that there won't be headwinds that might uh, prevent us from um, from getting the outcome that we're looking for. And and also, I think there's a lesson here of, you know, don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. I mean, e even though you didn't completely eliminate accidents and there was some backsliding overall, as you said, there was a positive outcome from all of this. 
so let me ask the flip side. Are there any lessons here about when we really can't change human behavior? So I think everything is possible, right? And and we can see lots of examples of situations where if you let's let's go back to the pandemic. Whatever you thought about the government and your your government's attempt to influence your behavior, undeniably things were done that one might have thought were not possible. And so it is possible to achieve a lot more than we might want. The question is, well, what's the cost of doing that? And therefore, you know, are there any downsides to it? And one of the things I think is really interesting is that if you start to, you might successfully succeed with one intervention. And an intervention is just an attempt to influence someone's decision-making or behavior. You might be successful with one thing, but if you irritate the hell out of people, you may well find that they that they comply, particularly if they if you can see it, they may well comply with one thing, but they may well find other ways to get back at you, you know, to get their revenge in very, very simple terms. And so I think what we need to be really careful of is look at the overall burden on people and make sure that what we're imposing is is reasonable. And there are going to be things, I think, that are harder to get people to do naturally. Uh, and if we really want to push those, then we need, just need to be mindful of the fact that we are pushing people uh, in a direction that they might not want. And at some level, we irritate people. Now, does that matter? Well, there are certain situations in which irritating people is fine. Right? If I want to fly to a different country, I'm going to have to comply with their rules to get into that country. And I, don't, I can't really negotiate if I want to go there. But if the rules become super irritating, maybe I'll decide not to fly to that country and I'll go somewhere else. And we might have the same thing with employees where we'd say, um, you know, actually, we employ you, we can tell you what to do. And that is legally correct. But on some level, you may well get to a point where people go, I've had enough of these rules and I'm going to go work somewhere else. And so there are, I think there are limits to this thing. And what we have to do is think about the totality of what we're asking people to do. There are going to be things that's very, very easy and reasonable, and they'll accept that. And there's going to be other things that are much more challenging. And so we have to start thinking about it, not from what are we legally able to do, what's the ethically right thing to do, but actually, you know, what does this feel like for people going through it? And then if we start thinking in those terms, we can recognize where we're pushing our luck a little bit, uh, where, you know, sometimes we can go a little bit further. And so I think this this behavioral approach to compliance that we saw illustrated by this example, because they didn't impose fines, you know, they didn't they didn't sort of push it too far. They just tried something that was working with people and and got, as you pointed out, to a certain compliance level, not 100 percent, but they got to a certain compliance level that improved the world. And that, I think, is how we can start to think about these things. As you're describing that, I was thinking of, you know, that. Uh, believe it or not, I was thinking about balloons and that, you know, if you squeeze a balloon in one area, you're putting pressure elsewhere. And I think it's a good admonition to recognize that as we go about trying to enforce rules and get people to change behavior, you may, if you squeeze too hard, put too much pressure elsewhere, which will lead to you know, an explosion or people just trying to find other ways that they can do things that they know they shouldn't just to show that, well, you haven't made a rule about this yet, so I will. Um, well, anyway, Christian, um, this is fascinating. I love the concept of compliance in the wild. I think it, the more we look at things around us, the more we can see behaviors and, and solutions out there that can affect what we do in our workplaces. Uh, I want to thank all of you for taking the time to listen today. I'm Adam Turtletaub from SCCE and HCCA. I hope we're able to expand your compliance perspective.